Hello, and welcome to Filmly Matters, a movie podcast hosted by Katie and Josh. And this episode is centered around the theme of Earth. Considering that April is Earth Month and has Earth Day in it, I thought what better theme uh, to go with than that of Mother Earth. And we kind of took some liberties with that theme and decided to cover two movies that deal in some form or fashion with the concept of nature and Mother Earth. And so the first film that we have on the docket that we were wanting to discuss is Melancholia. Yes, Melancholia is my film. That's the one that I thought would be best for Earth Day. And it is a 2011 drama, rated R, and it stars Kirsten Dunst, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Kiefer Sutherland, and Alexander Skarsgård. The whole premise of the film is about a new planet that's set out to collide with Earth. While a relationship between two sisters from a dysfunctional family is being challenged due to dependency, selfishness, and denial. This is not your typical doomsday preparation film. So whenever you see the description and you think about another planet coming towards planet Earth and it's going to annihilate it, you usually think it's going to be some type of action-adventure sci-fi film. But no, this is very much a drama. Yeah, like the the whole movie is just centered on this one family and it's a small family. And um, the only character who seems to really care or be anxious about their impending doom is the sister, <laughs> Claire. Yes. It seems like the, the metaphor of like the, the planet coming for Earth is almost like, uh, like mental illness. Exactly. That's looming over this family because like every single individual in this family has some form of mental illness. Yes, I I would agree with that. I think that uh, there's a lot going on here in the film, but also there was a lot of people that didn't like the movie because they got bored with it. Uh, it's around two and a half hours long, but to me it was a quick two and a half hours. I did not think that it lagged any. I think that just some people want to be entertained in that. I just think some people want to be entertained uh, with the notion of having to have action going throughout the whole film. But this movie did a really good job at keeping my attention the whole time. Yeah, it's it's a really quiet film. I don't think that aside from the the Wagner um, orchestral song that's used um, at different points in the film, there's not really much music in the film unless it's situational like with the um wedding reception and stuff and i think that when you watch the film for the first time especially if you're going into it not knowing a whole lot about what the movie is supposed to be about you're kind of just taken on this journey with this family and you don't know what's going to happen next or necessarily where the film is going so i I think that that could certainly contribute to 
uh, an average filmgoer's boredom. I had no idea what the film was about whenever mm-hmm. I first watched it, and I saw it in a theater, mm-hmm. which is uh, the best way to watch it. But, you know, uh, I had no idea what was going on, and the opening scene mm-hmm. of the film is very, very uh, startling. Not in a bad way, but the only way for me to describe it is, to me, it felt just like walking through a renowned art museum. Yes. There's just so many different visual images, and some are disturbing, and some are just mystic. And this goes on for a good, what do you think, three or four minutes? Yeah, I would say probably at least a good solid five even. Yeah, Yeah. and you don't know what's going on. That's just the movie starting, Mm -hmm. and it's just all of these different images. So, you know, where it keeps your attention at some point, you're also thinking, you know, what what in the hell is this? Because you have no idea what is going on for that solid five minutes. Then all of a sudden you just jump into a movie. Right. You know. Yeah, it it was interesting because, like, as you watch the film, you realize that certain vignettes from the opening are slowed down, hyper-focused excerpts from scenes that you see later on in the film. And then I noticed on this, um, because this is only the second time we've watched it, um, the first time being in the theater when it was first released, but I noticed that... um, you know, some of the scenes take place in outer space. Some of them are scenes from the movie that take place on Earth. And then some of them are just more, uh, like, symbolic and representational. Because I noticed later in the film, whenever Justine was talking about um, how she was feeling like there's gray woolly yarn that is dragging her. Like, there is a scene of her in her wedding dress where it looks like... At first, I thought it was, like, vines or tendrils mm-hmm. or something. And then after she started talking about that, I realized, oh, that's the gray woolly yarn that she was talking about that she felt like she was being dragged down by and slowed down by. There's no way you can pick up on everything in this film by just watching it once. There's absolutely no way. Um, Watching it the second time, even though uh, it was about a, goodness, about a nine-year span of difference, it... Uh, really brought some things to life for me that I didn't catch on in the first period. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because, like, the first time we watched it, it made a real impact on me, and I remember thinking about it for a long time afterwards. I even, like, wrote a whole, like, critical essay about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and I was a lot more harsh about some of the characters back then than I feel about them now. But, yeah, there was a lot that still stuck with me from watching it the first time and there's just still so much to notice and pay attention to it definitely is a beautiful film as far as the colors and uh, the way that even the costume design uh, even though it's modern day and the people in it are though eccentric very plain Mm -hmm. Uh, just there's a lot to appreciate in this just because of that plainness and how that it's tapped into this film that has so much going on in the outer elements i think that even with this being a drama 
and not an action-adventure film like we talked about. Uh, the, the filmmakers did a really good job at bringing everything together as far as with the, the scenery, how it's shot, how the costumes are. I think everything comes together nicely. Yeah, you, you're talking about the, the costuming. That wasn't something that I had thought about prior because, you know, it is such a modern film, but they are very plainly dressed, kind of dressed down folks. And it just made me think about how I feel like both sides of the family, because the house belongs to Kiefer Sutherland's character right. and Claire, um, that they're probably both like old money and kind of aristocratic in a way because a lot of times folks who come from old money make a real effort to dress down and they might have very might have very expensive pieces but they don't look expensive they're not going to be gaudy or garish or have lots of flashy um name brands and stuff all over them yeah that was one of the points i was trying to make was that very much old money and you can tell by the way that they portray themselves in this film Uh, so it's a tale of two sisters we have justine and claire you can tell even though the film is supposed to be divided one chapter about the daughter Justine and the other chapter about the daughter Claire. This film is more so very much about Justine, who is Kirsten Dunst's character. So from the beginning of the film, you're conditioned already to not like Justine. From the beginning of the film, uh, she's it's the time of her wedding and they're on their way, her and her newly husband are on their way to the wedding reception, and they're over two hours late, and it's very nonchalant that they're running behind, and then through the whole wedding reception, there's all kinds of other escapades, and you're just made not to like this character, and as the film goes on, you're going to see more and more that this young lady's got some problems, but... Um, you're conditioned not to like her. And then I think with the other sister, Claire, who is Justine's support system, you're really more conditioned to sympathize with her. I think that the film is centered around you want to feel sorry for her, you want to relate to that character. That's more so the tale of these two sisters that are... A part of this film. Yeah, they're they're very. Um, I, I don't know if I could really say codependent because it seems like. Yeah, I guess I could say codependent because Justine really does depend on Claire very heavily, and I get the sense that Claire really. I think that she has felt responsible for Justine pretty much her whole life, um, because based on what little that we've that we see of their parents, uh, their parents, Charlotte Rampling and John Hurt. Um, he is very flighty and very unreliable. And then their mother is very harsh, also undependable. Neither of them are particularly nurturing or reliable parents. So I get the impression that Claire has definitely had to be Justine's primary caretaker, probably not only emotionally and psychologically, but she's probably had to take care of her physically too because neither one of those parents seemed like they were good parents. 
Explain some of Justine's problems. Um, well, so being a counselor in training, um, I can't really like, I can't offer like an actual diagnosis because this is A, a fictional character and, and B, I don't have the opportunity to sit down and discuss all of her symptoms with her. But just from what you can observe, she definitely has some form of crippling depression because she ends up in a state where she just like physically cannot function, where all she can do is just lay in bed. She doesn't want to eat. She's barely conscious. But she seems to have a cycling pattern, so she'll be semi-functional and seem quote-unquote normal by all like kind of average standards and then she'll make all these different really impulsive decisions so like we see at the beginning of the film with the wedding reception she seems really happy and upbeat and bubbly and um maybe bubbly is too strong of a word but at least upbeat and happy and enjoying herself and then it seems like after her mother gives her quote-unquote toast. She kind of seems to shift moods after that, and she's much more quiet. She's reserved. She's visibly upset. She kind of bounces around throughout the setting, interacting with different people that you get introduced to, and she'll end up back with her husband, and they'll kind of canoodle a bit, and kind of act like they're about to engage in sex, but then she like retreats and leaves him by himself, or then they'll get back together and have this kind of like deep conversation and then she'll leave him again. As we progress through that, that first part of the, of the movie, she isolates herself, goes back to the crowd, isolates herself, goes back to the crowd, and she gets progressively more aggressive with people. She eventually lashes out at her boss, <laughs> tells him where to stuff it, she submerges herself in a bath, just randomly. She leaves the wedding reception and goes and takes a bath yeah. and then comes back to the reception. I tell you, those guests all had the patience of Job because, you know, like I said, bride and groom were over two hours late to the reception. And then, you know, there's all this going on. She keeps leaving and coming back, and they keep stalling and making excuses for her. And I'm sure you picked up uh, in the film that, what was it, at 11.30, they were all supposed to meet again to cut the cake? I didn't even know what time it was. It it's, was some, Yeah, it was like 11.30, 11.45. They make this announcement that that's the time for everyone to meet back because the bride and groom are going to cut the cake. And then she's late for that mm -hmm. as well. And so, you know, they push this whole reception back to, you know, it's well past midnight by the time everyone starts to leave. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so, and, like, it, like she'll engage with her husband in a way that's, like, really um, affectionate or like building up to some kind of sexual intercourse and then she cuts him off but then at one point she storms off takes a golf cart and then essentially rapes this guy <laughs> because 
She pushes him on the ground, forces herself on top of him, holds her hand over his mouth, and then, like, aggressively mounts him. Yeah. And I feel like if the gender dynamics were reversed and those actions were the same, then I don't think that there would be a question as to whether or not that was assault. Right, yeah. Definitely if the roles were reversed. Afterwards, he was pursuing her. You know, he thought that they were going to be together just after that one instance. You know, I don't think he really saw this girl's got some serious problems. Yeah, she she behaves in ways that are very erratic and are very impulsive. And I mean, I don't know if she has some form of like a like a bipolar disorder or something because she bounces back and forth between like the impulsive behaviors and then like crippling depression. I have no idea. I don't know what sort of disorder she might actually be diagnosed with, but well, over half the film is the wedding reception, so you really get an idea of what type of dysfunction there is in this family and how the two sisters are codependent from that wedding reception. <laughs> One of the notes that I made is, much like mental illness, this family is exhausting. <laughs> oh, I can see that. <laughs> Because, I mean, the, the the dad is just like, life is just one big joke, one big party. The mom, everything is awful and terrible. Have fun with your doomed marriage. Oh. <laughs> and then pieces out to take her own bath. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland is miserable and is just like uh, kind of a jerk. I mean, at the He's same... Claire's husband yeah. and Justine's brother-in-law. Yeah, it's like, on the one hand, I'm sure he's kind of like your your average Joe who would just be, like, done with the level of uh, drama that all these individuals bring to the, to the movie. Um, but he's also, like, very brazenly insensitive. <laughs> I think he was, like you said, I think he was just done. Yeah. He's the one with all the wealth and the massive amounts of money. Mm -hmm. But you don't ever get even, you know, the fact that they were paying for the wedding mm -hmm. and they were hosting it. I never got any impression of him being a jerk, you know, or being, you know, full of himself. I think he was just sick and tired of all the nonsense that was going on with his family. Yeah, the full of himself stuff kind of, like, comes into play later whenever he starts actually talking about the planets and stuff because they, um, you never know what these people actually do for a living to make all this money. Um, they just kind of casually mention that he likes to study these things, uh, meaning as astronomy and stuff, but that that's not, like, his job. But he still, like, takes it upon himself to try to tell Claire that she's being ridiculous and absurd for being concerned about the the planet's path towards Earth and her, her being worried about it. Because it turns out that, that she's right to be worried about it. Right. But he's he's very convinced that he knows better. Um, I, I don't know about that. I don't know. I think a lot of that was him just trying to keep her calm. Because as he mentions, and as we do find out, she does have a tendency to worry a little too much about certain things. Claire is a very anxious, anxious woman. And uh, I don't blame her. <laughs> hmm. I, th I think she... Uh, I think she was probably neglected a lot as a child and probably had no um, 
no sense of safety or assurance growing up and having a very unpredictable family life from all members probably contributed a lot to her developing her anxious worldview. Well, she definitely keeps it together enough to deal with Justine. I mean, even though I think that she feels like she's slipping away from her, uh, she does a good job with going above and beyond to try to make sure that her sister, you know, is well taken care of and that she knows and should feel that she's loved. Yeah, Claire is a very caring person. Uh, for all of her anxiety, she's she's very much concerned with the with the well-being of others, whether it's Justine or her son or the planet, really. Whereas, like, Justine has the perspective that everyone is evil and we all deserve to die. <laughs> Claire is, is much more moved by by humanity in general. So we see after the wedding reception that this wedding was all basically just a big fluke and the marriage is not going to work. So then you have Justine that is now back to her dependency on Claire. And as the story progresses, we start to see that the whole theme around the planet heading towards Earth starts to intensify. So things really start to become a little bit more concerning as the movie goes on. And then there towards the end, you start to see that it really engages you, or at least it did me, whenever you're really wanting to know, is this really going to happen or not, as far as with the planet Melancholia striking Earth. Yeah, it definitely triggered my own anxiety just thinking about you know, what I would do in that situation and just the whole like futility of it all because there is nothing you can do in that kind of a situation, which I mean, coming back to the whole metaphor of mental illness, I mean, in a lot of cases, there isn't anything you can do aside from management. There is no cure for mental illness, much like there was no cure or remedy for the planet exactly coming for Earth. So it didn't take me long to figure out that with this film that the the planet Melancholia is just one big metaphor mm -hmm. for depression. And I think that's the theme that the film ends on, is that left untreated mm -hmm. and I think left in denial, as many people were, about melancholia coming for Earth, I think that that proves that there can be some tragic ending in that with the light of depression and with mental illness left untreated. Yeah, I found it interesting that for all the family's wealth and privilege that Justine never seemed to get any of the help that she needed. And everybody had all these unrealistic expectations that they were trying to force on her. Like, basically just bluntly telling her, you're supposed to be happy, you need to be happy right now, snap out of it, stop acting this way. And that was pretty much the extent of their, <laughs> their perspective on mental health and her issues. I want to say that there's, there's some kind of correlation that could be seen between, you know, tr not treating or viewing mental illness in the correct way, leading to the destruction of a person 
and there being some link to the destruction of the planet, but I'm not sure how to formulate that right now. It's a tough one. Well, I think it goes back also to prove that uh, even with tons of money, that doesn't always ensure you're going to be happy. That doesn't always ensure that, you know, everything is going to work out to your favor. Mm -hmm. You see that even though this is an uber-wealthy family, uh, nobody's happy. Yeah, and I I guess there's a similarity with with John, who's uh, Kiefer Sutherland. Um, He's very convinced in the, the knowledge that humankind has and that scientists have, but the universe ultimately is what it is and it's cold and unfeeling and it's going to do what it's going to do. Right. And kind of like with Justine's mental illness, even with all that money and privilege, just like with scientists and all that knowledge, um, you know, it ultimately doesn't matter. Makes sense. <laughs> And, and I noticed, like, Lars von Trier is a very, like, visual director, and uh, I noticed while we were watching it that when melancholy is having this influence and effect on the earth, that one of the things that happens is you just, like, get this random bout of snow in the middle of what is spring or summer. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very um, unexpected and sudden, and it just kind of made me think of, like, a, a mood change. Yeah, they just come on unexpectedly and it can just turn everything that's supposed to be upside down much like the first time i watched it i i really didn't like justine's character at all this time around i tried to force myself to have more empathy for her (laughs) and sympathy for her um and there are certainly times when i did but ultimately i i feel like it was the intent for you to not like her right and I felt kind of like a bit annoyed and aggravated with her, probably much like Claire was towards the end, because she seemed really quite smug with the whole end of the world business, because it seemed like um, a big part of her depression was that, you know, like everything is pointless. And ultimately, in some way, she was right, because <laughs> the world ended. Right. And especially, I mean, I felt bad for her husband Michael the whole time and then like he he seemed so um hopeful about buying that farm and stuff and she like discards that picture mm-hmm. and I just made a note that's like knowing what I know it's like I mean she's kind of right it is kind of pointless right <laughs> it's just it, it's definitely not um It's a beautiful film. It is not a happy or uplifting film. No. And uh, one last point, I think, is that it was interesting to me that even though there was the possibility of the world coming to an end, and once uh, it got to the point where they realized that was very much so what was going to happen, there was not any kind of... Uh, attempts made by anybody um, for relationships to be bonded and mended in any way. You know, Claire and her husband uh, didn't draw any closer together, nor did Claire and Justine. uh, Justine with Claire and her husband, you know, nobody made any kind of attempt to just savor the moment, you know, of the last few days or so left on earth yeah i'm i even made a note it was like why does no one talk to each other (laughs) (laughs) none of these people communicate with one another (laughs) 
Well, I chose this as my Earth Day film for two reasons. Number one, it does have to do with the planet Earth and the annihilation of it eventually. But then also I think that it has a lot to do with humankind. You have to think about all the elements that make up Earth and we as people being a big part of that and then also there's the elements of you know the water and the seasons and that and how all of that shifts to where moods change and so i think that very much plays into the aspect of the depression mental illness um, dependency sympathy all of those things i think can have a lot to do with the alignment of the stars and the change of the seasons and atmosphere. So that's my pick. As far as my overall rating of this film, I give it four out of five stars. I, I really appreciated this film for all that it was. So I think that uh, it was very good and that it's definitely deserving of those four out of five stars. You can never go wrong in any way with Kirsten Dunst. I've said a million times over, she is one of the most beautiful faces in Hollywood and I love everything that she's in and I think she's amazing and so she really knocks it out of the ballpark in this film. Yeah, she's a very... I guess, like, nuanced performer. She doesn't have to do big things in order for you to, to get the emotion of the character that she's portraying or what that character is feeling or going through or thinking. No. Um, yeah, she's a very, very talented performer. I've been, I've had the hots for her ever since Crazy Beautiful. <laughs> so that's how far back Kirsten and I go. She's a very lovely woman. Yes. Um... I would agree. I would give the film a four out of five rating as well. I wouldn't call it a perfect film, but it was a beautiful film to watch. It, certain parts of it felt like a modern art piece. I think that it was it was both unique and also very much like on the nose in a way of looking at mental illness in this very grand universal metaphorical kind of way. And I think all the performers did outstanding jobs. And I think that the overall set design and coloring was also beautiful to look at and fit with the themes of the film. Because like the, the coloring of the entire wedding reception had all these golden yellowy hues and then as soon as that's over and we're into the other part of the film everything has a blue tinge to it which is uh which echoes the coloring of melancholy of the planet which is blue feeling blue melancholy depression depression <laughs> <laughs> it's a film about depression yes. it's a pretty film about depression yes. <laughs> So our next film is 1986's Little Shop of Horrors, which itself is a film adaptation of the 1982 off-Broadway musical comedy of the same name, um, which itself was based on the 1960 film The Little Shop of Horrors that was directed by Roger Corman. It's kind of like a turducken of a film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's a good way to put it. <laughs> Very American. 
And Roger Corman was a really, he is a well-renowned um, director who did a lot of popular movies in the 50s and 60s that were horror or sci-fi themed. Um, he had a whole retinue of films that were adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe films that starred Vincent Price, for instance. And so I think there's a heavy amount of influence of his style and the entire era that the film is set in that you can see in this movie. Um, even the opening credits reminded me of Star Wars and the and that kind of like sci-fi theme. So it's about a geeky florist shop worker who finds out that his Venus flytrap-esque plant has an appetite for human blood. And this geeky florist shop worker, Seymour, is played by Rick Moranis. Audrey is played by Ellen Green. Uh, Vincent Gardenia plays Mushnik. And then we have a whole slew of delightful and colorful cameo people. <laughs> I guess Steve Martin is considering a starring role as well. Mm. Who plays Oren Scrivelli, DDS. <laughs> Uh, an absolute bananas dentist. And Levi Stubbs of The Four Tops plays Audrey, too. And I really love just the whole retinue of cameo appearances that are in this movie, starting with, like, uh, Christopher Guest, who plays the creepily perky shop customer there at the beginning. It's like, hey, would you look at that plant? <laughs> um, and then John Candy, who plays the, the radio personality, who's just delightful. Jim Belushi, who plays the the scout towards the end, who wants to take Audrey to into every home in America. And I would probably say my favorite would be Bill Murray's character. He plays Arthur Denton, the overly enthusiastic dental patient of Steve Martin's dentist. He is looking for a good time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, what's fun is that that entire, everything that Bill Murray said was completely ad-libbed. Oh, wow. He just made up every bit of it. <laughs> All of it. He did great with that. Truly a comedic genius of our times. Oh, and I think we should also mention the um, Greek chorus girls. Right. Who are our narrators throughout the film and provide a lot of the commentary and kind of move the the film along and their characters names are crystal ronette and chiffon and they're played by taina arnold michelle weeks and tisha campbell and i mean i just they add so much to the film yeah and and i love those characters a lot uh so it's set in like a downtown new york environment that they refer to as skid row but the entire movie was filmed on a set that was built in England, which I thought was interesting because uh, it feels like such an American film. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have expected it to be filmed in England. One of the things I loved about the set design was how much it evokes a sense of a theater production. Yeah, that's I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. That was my thing. It feels just like you're watching a, a play uh, in a traditional theater as opposed to watching a full feature-length film. Yeah, I liked, I liked how there was no allusion to realism. Right. Uh, it, it, like, you, you could tell it was a set, and it was a beautifully constructed, detailed set, but it was definitely, you could definitely tell that it 
didn't want to hide the fact that it was a set. And um, I think that that both pays homage to like an older film that would have taken place in the 50s and 60s that would have been a sci-fi horror movie that maybe a little schlockier you know Mm. that maybe not have had a big budget like a Roger Corman film and then it also seemed like an homage to the fact that it was based off of a stage musical yeah for sure I thought that they they blended the two together well so I really, I really love that, and the whole, the whole um, aesthetic of this movie is very evocative of fifties and sixties sci-fi movies. Um, you have the, the, the geeky hero, and then you have a very stereotypical kind of bombshell damsel in distress, who's Audrey. You have very clear, distinct character archetypes of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, and. The, the whole mood and vibe of the movie is kind of quirky and fun and um, not too serious. It's not too self-serious. No, not at all. And I think they did a good job with that because it was corny but lovable at the same time. Yeah, it, w- it was corny, but it had heart. Yeah. I guess it's kind of a basic way to describe it because it was it's like a sweet film yeah and that was the other thing too i think it felt like um when it's over i think you were kind of um you know it was happy go lucky this was a great time and that's kind of the essence you feel whenever you leave you know a live theater production yeah and that's like one of the one of the big things about this movie is that the movie ending that we see is not the original ending that was shot, which is something that I had no idea about until I started researching this film. I remember hearing that before, yeah, back in the day. Yeah, there's an entirely, like, 23-minute finale, and it's one that follows the musical's ending, which I've never seen the musical, so I didn't know that it had a different ending from the movie. But essentially... What happens in those final 23 minutes is that, as opposed to in the movie, when Audrey 2 starts to eat Audrey, (laughs) um, Seymour doesn't get there in time. And so he pulls her out of Audrey's mouth, Audrey 2's mouth, and she's mortally wounded. And she uh, wants him to feed her to Audrey 2 so the plant can go on living and she can, you know, at least be somewhere green is what she says. And then afterwards, Seymour uh, wants to commit suicide by jumping off the building. And as he's there, that's when the Jim Belushi character would come in and talk about putting an Audrey 2 in everybody's home. And he says that he already has the clippings of the plant and like things are already in motion for that to happen. And what ultimately ends up happening is Audrey 2 and all of its spawn end up taking over the planet and destroying it. So basically the end, the original ending of Little Shop of Horrors is very much like the ending of Melancholia where everybody dies. (laughs) And um, when they screen tested this original ending, it bombed (laughs) because um they said that in order for a film to be released it has to have at least a 55 percent approval rating and it had a 13 percent approval rating 
audiences loved the movie up until it got to the end. And Frank Oz, his perspective was, with a stage production, you can have an ending like that where all the characters die because at the end, all the actors come out and they're smiling and they're bowing. And all those characters that you loved, you have this like reassurance they're still alive. They're not really dead. (laughs) As opposed to in a movie where you go through and you watch this whole thing and all those characters die and then they're just dead at the end still. So they had to go back and reshoot and do an entirely different ending where instead Seymour gets there in time, saves Audrey. Seymour ends up electrocuting Audrey 2 and Audrey 2 kind of like explodes into all these little spores and he and Audrey end up getting to run away and get married and live in the little cute suburbia paradise house that she envisioned. But there is just a little bit of a hint that maybe all is not completely well mm-hmm. because you see a little tiny baby Audrey, too, in their yard that kind of gives a menacing, knowing smile like, I'm not done yet. So I thought I thought that was interesting. I I think that I would be on the same page where... Seeing that ending live would be a lot different than seeing that ending in this movie because I feel like the 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 mood of that ending is really disparate to the whole rest of the feel of the film. But yeah, um, and that original ending people thought was lost for a really long time. They restored it, and there was an edition of the DVD that came out in 2012 that has it as a special feature. Oh, nice. Yeah, there's, like, a lot of miniature work and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it was, like, $5 million they spent that they, that didn't end up in the in the final cut that was oh, released. Wow. And there was some... Um, I always find a lot of, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff really fascinating to learn about these movies. So, like, Steven Spielberg was to executive produce the film, and Martin Scorsese was set to direct, and he even wanted to shoot the film in 3D. <laughs> but the production got stalled with some lawsuits with the um, original film screenwriter, and uh, John Landis was even attached to the project oh, for a wow. time. Yeah. And what I found interesting was that... So Ellen Green, who plays Audrey, she was not the first choice for that role even though she was the original off-Broadway Audrey. Um, So the studio wanted Cindy Lauper, (laughs) who turned it down. And there were even rumors about Barbara Streisand being offered the part. Mm. But ultimately they went with Green, and um, everybody was blown away with her performance. And um, I think that vocally she's just outstanding. Oh, yeah. We never saw much more of her after this film yeah i was i didn't i didn't look to see i I would assume that she probably maybe had more of a career like maybe in broadway Mm -hmm. but as far as like film and television goes i haven't i don't know yeah it was just a handful of other things and nothing very famous and then the the character of the uh masochistic dental patient (laughs) uh in Corman's film, uh, the name was Wilbur Force, and that's uh, one of Jack Nicholson's earliest roles. Right. He's cut from the stage version, but he was added back to the 1986 film and was renamed Arthur Denton and played by Bill Murray. And as I said, he improvised all of his dialogue. Then it it supposedly took uh, Steve Martin six weeks to film all of his scenes as Orin, and he contributed a lot of different ideas to, like... um, socking the nurse in the face. (laughs) He was originally supposed to knock her out uh, using his motorbike helmet, 
and then like ripping off the doll head and stuff. And I can just like envision him like just going wild on the set and like doing all kinds of crazy things. And same with Bill Murray. Uh, One of the things that really stood out to me was just the, the quality and the execution of all the practical effects in this movie. Um, Because I was sitting there and I was watching it, and I think as a modern-day audience, especially in the year 2021, you kind of take for granted high-quality visual effects. Right. And just thinking back to the fact that this was 1986, and there were no blue screens, there were no green screens, there were no CGI opticals in any part of this movie with the exception of the reshot ending where uh, Seymour electrocutes Audrey too. All of those plants are practical puppets. Every single one of them <laughs> had to be built. They're so detailed. Oh my God, they're amazing. I mean, just looking at the movement that Audrey too gets and the expression that they get like in the lips that move and in the like head gestures and the, I mean, just, yeah. it's so detailed. Those, all those puppets were designed by a man named Lyle Conway, and he was a former colleague of Frank Oz's um, at Jim Henson's Muppet Workshop, and he also designed characters for The Muppet Show, The Great Muppet Caper, and he worked with Frank Oz on The Dark Crystal. And he had been asked by Frank Oz to come back and work on this puppet because Frank Oz knew (laughs) how much work was going to be needed to make this puppet. And I thought it was funny that... um, there's a, a, a 2016 article that was written uh, by Ethan Alter of Yahoo News, and he interviewed Al Conway. And um, Conway said that he was a little hesitant at first to work with Frank Oz again just because of how intense he could be. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, of course, I know nothing about Frank Oz, but that just amused me. Um, and so there are, like, eight different stages of Audrey II in its development, and then, like... The masterpiece of the movie is the massive 13-foot-high puppet that's made of rubber and Kevlar. And it was, uh, he frequently refers to it as the feed me plant. Because hmm. that's the one where he goes, feed me. <laughs> <laughs> all day. Um, and he did most of the sculpting on all the puppets himself. Um, I thought it was fun that, like, one of his design choices, like, for making the pedals um, around the head of the uh, baby, like, coffee can, uh, Audrey too, was he wanted to make it kind of look like a baby bonnet to make it look more precious and innocent. He got to build a completely working prototype for that Feed Me plant and then rebuild it. He had a whole three-month rehearsal period with the puppeteers and, and a director. He got to cast the two major plant puppeteers himself, uh, one of whom had just finished a run uh, in the West End production of The Little Shop. So he said that he had built up the necessary back muscles oh, wow. <laughs> to perform that Mean Green Mother number at the end. And he also had Brian Henson as a key performer for the Feed Me plant. And yeah, that Feed Me plant was made of foam rubber and cables, as well as a Kevlar skull with foam rubber over it. And they had 51 puppeteers on set for that Mean Green Mother number. When everything was working, the vines and all that, they had a core group of four puppeteers that operated the head and then five or six under the stage operating all those vines. Yeah, great. Yeah, <laughs> the vines were freestanding, non-marionetted puppets. So I don't really know the details about how they were controlled, if they weren't, like, marionetted, I guess, with, like, lines. Right. 
Um, but uh, Conway said that, that was something that had never been done before. And the hardest shot was the one where Audrey 2 reaches into the cash register. And that took 30 takes. Oh, wow. And that was something that I thought of while we were watching the movie. Like, how did they get the vines to do that? Right. Like, just, just the little... They had to pick up a quarter and then go move it and put it in a payphone <laughs> with these vines. And what was interesting is that the way that they were able to do the puppet and the live performers together and then have the puppet still have the kind of like animated nature to itself was that they filmed at a slower speed and then sped it up later to make the plant look more animated, which was Something that they decided on kind of accidentally because when Conway was looking at the rehearsal footage of the plant and he was speeding through it, he noticed that the plant looked better when it was played at a higher rate of a higher frame rate. Hmm. And so that meant that Rick Moranis and Ellen Green had to sing slower. They had to act slower. So they had there was like this month long training process that they went through in order to work with the plant in that way, which blows my mind. Goodness, so much went into this film. <laughs> there is just so, so much that goes into this movie and to get those practical effects just right. Yeah, and each of the talking plants had to be cleaned, repainted, and patched up at the end of each shooting day, which could take up to three hours, depending on the size. And the, the supper time number uses two different sizes of puppet. Um, one when it's singing alone in the shop, and then um, it's actually a smaller size. And then the massive one is whenever it's in focus with the actual actors. And the movie, uh, the movie ended up getting two Oscar nominations, one for Best Visual Effects and one for Best Original Song for um, Audrey II's number Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. They lost both. <laughs> um, the Best Visual Effects Award went to Aliens, and then the Best Original Song went to Take My Breath Away from Top Gun. But interestingly, the Mean Green Mother from Outer Space song is the first Oscar-nominated song to contain profanity in the lyrics, and it was also the first to be sung by a villain. Oh, wow. Fun fact. Interesting. Yeah. And so there's there's been, like, some... A debate. There's like this huge cult following that I didn't realize existed for Little Shop of Horrors. There's like a whole like community of people who are just like in love with this movie. Kind of like, I guess, like the cult following that kind of came up with like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh-huh. There's like all this information. There's like a whole like fan wiki all about Little Shop of Horrors and like all the differences between the stage production and all the actors and stuff that are involved in stage productions versus the film versions and things like that. Mm. There's just like a whole bunch of information. And so there's like a, a debate as to what the gender of the plant is because typically we think of plants in a more feminine way, I think because of like the whole like life generating thing. And there's like debate about whether or not the little tiny Audrey heads there at the end are actually like babies or just like an extension of Audrey 2. Right. Since, huh. you know, they can talk and sing and stuff as opposed to when Audrey 2 was a baby, she couldn't. Or they couldn't. Uh, but also the Audrey 2 puppet is, has always been pretty much voiced by male actors and performers. Or there's the viewpoint that it's an asexual plant. 
and it's not really male or female, which is kind of the view that I have. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, and not to get wrapped too wrapped up in that. <laughs> not to get too wrapped up in the gender identity of a <laughs> of a puppet. For me, that's but, but, uh, I would say that Audrey too is gender fluid <laughs> and or non-binary. It, it felt um, the vocal performance felt very much like a drag queen to me. That, that was like the kind of visual that I had in my mind was like this really theatrical drag queen of color. Hmm. Um, is how I picture Audrey too, if Audrey too were a person. <laughs> uh, it it kind of reminded me a bit of Dr. Frankenfurter in a way, in some of the the way that the some of the lines were delivered. Hmm. But that that that's just my opinion. But um, I love love the voice of Audrey too in this movie. And it was played by Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops. And he had to get permission from the Four Tops to do a solo project. And the playback would be slow and pitch corrected, so it was understandable back on set because of the way that they had to do the filming. What's bananas to me is that after the first test screening in Los Angeles, the studio wanted Rodney Dangerfield to re-record the voice. Oh, wow. Because, uh, Because he was a really popular performer at the time but i just i can't imagine i could imagine it i just not with any of the singing numbers though no it would be a totally different film yeah i feel like because there there's there's like a there's kind of a menacing quality to the voice as it is in the film yeah i agree i mean definitely it's in the Plant speaks with authority, mm-hmm. or I don't think you would quite get that with Rodney Dangerfield. It would always be funny, you know? Yeah, it would be more goofy as opposed to, like, Audrey Two's voice, as it is in the film, is a little bit more sensual and kind of, um, like, tempting. Like, yeah. Like when he, when it, they're trying to tempt Seymour. Yeah. It's how I would guess the, the uh, serpent. And the Adam and Eve story would talk. That's what I've envisioned before about with Audrey Two's voice. Eve, baby. <laughs> um, yeah, so I really wanted to to look up some information about just the the practical effects and like some of the behind the scenes information about the movie and just how they executed this movie because. It's just so impressive to me that they were able to do that. And then I just, I really loved the dentist character. He's just so awful, but so funny. He really made the film. He was like a over-the-top, like Elvis Presley, rockabilly, um, psycho. (laughs) (laughs) Psychobilly kind of guy. And the, the scene between him and Bill Murray is just perfection. It almost, it almost felt like kind of, it had like this like undertone of like an S and M kind of session together, you know, hmm. but without Just a little, but like with with more of like a comedic as opposed to anything erotic. <laughs> uh, it was definitely definitely a funny scene, but yeah, I love the whole the whole vibe of this movie. Yeah, I do too. They did really really well with um, taking a film. Uh, and turning it into a musical. Uh, I mean, I understand that it was an off-Broadway 
um, prior to, but I think if you take the 1960s version of Little Shop of Horrors and then compare it to the Frank Oz 1986, you see a lot of creativity in how you could take this essentially horror film uh, and then turn it into a family-friendly, fun musical. Yeah, the, and I feel like there's sort of like this kind of like goofy element that you see kind of like in the original that kind of goes into this one too. Yeah. I feel like it was really successful in what it set out to execute and the amount of care that went into it is very evident. And I I don't think you could have found a more sympathetic and endearing character actor (laughs) of the 1980s than Rick Moranis to play Seymour. Wasn't he perfect? He's he's just adorable. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there was not anybody else I was thinking that would be better cast for that role than him. Yeah. Everybody was perfectly cast. Yeah. For sure. And I saw that in January of last year, in 2020, there's reportedly a remake in the works. I did see that. Yeah, with uh, Taron... Egerton in talks to play Seymour and Scarlett Johansson as Audrey and Billy Porter as Audrey too, which would be fantastic. Billy Porter would do a good Audrey too, I think. And there was confirmation in February, 2020 from the Hollywood reporter that it was being developed by Warner brothers, who was the studio in charge of the 1986 version. And, and that David Geffen, who was one of the original producers on the 86 film would be a producer on the remake as well, with talks of Chris Evans to play Dr. Scrivello. The only thing I'm going to dread is just all that CGI. It's not going to be the same. Yeah, it it won't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it will be lovely, but it just just won't hold the same impact, I don't think. No, not by far. And that's, that's really, I feel like, my whole thing with practical effects, particularly well-executed effects, to me feel, they feel more real than CGI does. Because yeah. even as detailed and skilled and um, impressive as modern day CGI can be, I don't think it's, you, you still know it's fake. <laughs> and as opposed to practical effects that feel like they're actually in the real world with you. And to me that feels more impressive and meaningful than any CGI could be. Absolutely what you got with this film, too. So, for me, I would give it a 5 out of 5. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. So, you're giving Little Shop of Horrors Mm -hmm. a masterpiece Mm -hmm. rating. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow, you're generous. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. I feel like it did everything that it set out to do and executed it perfectly. Wow. Wow. So I think I think for the genre and for the time it was filmed in and everything else, it it, com- it completely knocked it out of the park. Wow. Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, I give it a four out of five. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it was uh, on a scale of the five. I think it, it reached the four. It was very good. I think that um, it was cast well. I think that every single one of the songs... Um, are great. You don't get bored with any of them. They all are the type that stick in your head. And I just really, really, really appreciated 
uh, all the cameos also that makes for a really fun movie and so and so they cast the right people in for just those cameo roles it was it was great i just i really really enjoyed what they did with this film yeah it's a it's a lovely little film yeah so it's it's a nice little movie now our plans for our next episode are going to be um an oscars recap so the Oscars are this coming Sunday, and our plan is to watch the film that ends up winning Best Picture, talk about it, and then kind of give our impressions and uh, our opinions about what the ceremony ends up being altogether. This year is my least enthusiastic year ever of the Oscars. Yeah, the Oscars are like your Super Bowl, and you don't seem to have been very enthusiastic about it at all. No, that's uh, I live for the Oscars every year, and I have ever since I was about six years old. And this year, I think with COVID and everything else, and not getting to have the sit in the theater experience with movies and that, I just I've completely lost interest. So let's hope for the twenty twenty two ceremony to have me back in my regular high spirits yeah because normally we make it a point to watch every single nominee for best picture and i don't think we have done that no we have not so so our plan is to cover the one who wins and then have a little dish session yeah so so look forward to it so we'll do that and um, if you want to leave us a review or a rating um, on iTunes or um, the podcast app, we will read it on an episode. So we will see you after the Oscars. All right. Talk to you all later. Bye. If you liked what you heard, then please rate, review, and subscribe. That kind of feedback really helps small podcasts like ours get noticed and heard by more people. If you're listening on Spotify, you can hit like and follow instead. If you want to send us a review by email or any other feedback, then feel free to email us at filmlymatters at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at filmlymatters and check out our website at filmlymatters.com where you can read more about us listen to full episodes, and read our film critiques and reviews. Thank you!